Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. Let's jump into the news roundup. Many parents of young children have been waiting for more than two years to get a COVID vaccine. Now they're a step closer once again, but could it be another false alarm? Meanwhile, leaked audio from Kevin McCarthy and leaked texts from Mark Meadows are causing a stir around the investigation into January 6th. And President Biden says he's taking a hard look at student loan debt, but drawing the line at 50 grand. All that and more on the Roundup this week, so let's jump in. Cheryl Gay Stolberg is a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Cheryl, always a pleasure. Heidi Prisbella is a Washington correspondent, formerly of NBC News. Heidi, thanks for joining us. And Jeff Mason is Reuters White House correspondent. Jeff, welcome to you. Well, new research from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows almost 60 percent of Americans have now had COVID, including 75 percent of children. This news comes as the U.S. approaches one million COVID deaths. Jeff, first of all, wow. Secondly, why does it matter that so many people have been infected? Wow is right. Well, first on the upcoming, uh, I don't even know what to call it. It's not an anniversary, but the, the upcoming day when we hit a million cases, um, or a million deaths, rather, in the United States. I think that that will be a, a reflection point for this administration and for the country uh, about the last couple years. But it certainly comes at a time, and this gets back to your question, um, at which the, the conditions with regard to COVID are a lot better. Deaths are going down statistically. Hospitalizations are ticking back up again. But cases are at a huge rise again. And the health, uh, public health officials, people within the White House, um, have, you know, I think they're concerned about that, but they're also signaling that we are in a phase where because those cases are not as dangerous, i.e. not leading people to die, not leading people to go to the hospital, that we're in a, that we're in a new phase. But with, with regard to what you're saying about the CDC, that's another piece of it. Because so many people have gotten Omicron and have gotten this this BA2 variant, it just means that there's a lot more immunity around the country, even amongst those who have not gotten vaccinated. That said, their messaging on vaccination and boosting has stayed the same. They still want people to get them because they believe strongly that that has helped lead to this decrease in deaths and at least before now, the leveling off and decrease in hospitalizations. And Cheryl, what about that Omicron variant Jeff was mentioning? The CDC says that increase in infected Americans is because of that highly contagious Omicron variant. Do we know what this surge of infections could mean for cases of long COVID? Well, we really don't know yet. We'll have to, um, as the name implies, it's long COVID. We'll have to chart these patients over time. But um, the CDC does say that because Omicron, which is a highly, highly infectious variant, and we saw that huge spike around Christmas time, uh, has really raced through the American population, that about uh, two-thirds or, or 60% of Americans have already had COVID. That doesn't really mean that we're out of the woods yet. We know that 
both vaccine-induced immunity and natural immunity wane, and they wane pretty quickly. So people who get Omicron, um, who had Omicron, as I did, in fact, in December, um, could be vulnerable again some months down the road because the immunity wanes. And that's why Jeff said very accurately that the White House and public health officials are still saying that vaccination and boosting, if you are eligible, is the first line of defense. And it's also very important to remember as we move into this phase closer to an endemic phase that many people are still vulnerable. Mm -hmm. We have elderly people and immune-compromised people who uh, may not respond to the vaccine or uh, who have underlying conditions and are still very, very vulnerable. And it's important to protect those people. Well, let me ask you a little bit more about moving from one phase to the other, because the fact that so many people now have COVID antibodies has a lot wondering if we're nearing the end of the pandemic. And my colleague, our anchor over at PBS NewsHour, Judy Woodruff, asked Dr. Anthony Fauci, President Biden's chief medical advisor, about that on Tuesday. Here's what he said on Tuesday. We are certainly right now in this country out of the pandemic phase. Namely, we don't have 900,000 new infections a day and tens and tens and tens of thousands of hospitalizations and thousands of deaths. We are at a low level right now. But when Dr. Fauci joined 1A on Wednesday, he clarified a bit. Here's him the next day. I was talking about the acute fulminant phase, and everyone agrees we're not there. We're not getting 900,000 infections a day. Is the pandemic still here? Absolutely. So when I said phase, I probably should have said the acute stage of the pandemic phase. We are now transitioning, transitioning, not there yet, but transitioning to more of an endemicity where the level of infection is low enough that people are starting to learn how to live with the virus, still protecting themselves by vaccination, by the availability of antivirals, by testing. So I really meant the acute phase as opposed to pandemic. The pandemic is not over. Don't anyone think that? That was Dr. Anthony Fauci speaking with Jen White Wednesday here on 1A. So Cheryl, what, what is the administration's message on where we are with the pandemic right now? So I actually talked to Dr. Fauci about this in preparation for the show, and I asked him um, what message he wants to convey to the American public. And it was much as he said on 1A, that we are out of the acute phase. That doesn't mean that we are um, out of the pandemic, but we are transitioning into a more controlled phase in which deaths are lower. He says, Hopefully, we'll continue to transition to a much more controlled phase, but we must be vigilant and continue to practice appropriate public health measures such as vaccination and boosting and utilization of masking when appropriate, especially, he notes, since cases are recently increasing and there is always a threat of a substantial resurgence and the appearance of another problematic variant. Well, one of those infected recently was the vice president. Kamala Harris tested positive earlier this week despite being asymptomatic. Her staff says she's doing well and that President Biden is reportedly not a close contact. 
This week, also, both Pfizer and Moderna have requests into the FDA concerning kids and the COVID vaccines. Heidi, I want to turn to you here. Moderna has asked the FDA to authorize a lower dose of its vaccine for kids six months to just under six years old. What else do we know about that Moderna request? Right. What it's looking like now, Amna, is that it, there possibly could be a two-track authorization here. Earlier, Pfizer, as you know, did uh, seek to get theirs approved. They pulled back. Uh, now they're looking more closely at the data uh, and thinking that maybe kids may even need a third dose. Here's the good news, right, is that this is proving to be effective, uh, both of these vaccines, at preventing children um, from getting very sick. We've seen no cases uh, previously, like we saw with some of the other um, age groups, the other cohorts with myocarditis. All of that is great. But at the same time, it's only about 51% effective, at least when it comes to the Moderna. Now, what do you make of all of this? Pivoting off of everything that we've just said about watching closely what's happening with all the new variants, we're going to have to watch kids particularly closely, because the effectiveness here does seem to be a bit lower than what we've seen in adults. Um, Being out of this acute stage is, of course, important. Um, But like Cheryl said, the past infection, um, you know, the fact that the children, 75% of children have had this is not considered protection from future infection. And even though we're out of this acute stage, we do have these other variants brewing. And the reason why is because we really have to admit that we've failed at one critical component in the vaccination campaign, which is the global effort to vaccinate the rest of the world. These new variants that are proving very contagious um, and very problematic are coming from other parts of the world, South Africa specifically, which is what we saw with Omicron. And I covered uh, COVID very closely for NBC. And all of the experts who I talked to said that it would be very misleading not to tell people to expect additional waves, particularly coming this fall, Amna. A good and important reminder that most of the rest of the world does remain unvaccinated. We'll get into more of the week's biggest headlines after the break. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. It's the News Roundup. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back into the conversation. Well, Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy received a standing ovation during a caucus meeting from his GOP colleagues this week. That was after his impassioned response to a series of leaked phone calls, which revealed conversations between McCarthy and members of Republican leadership days after the January 6th insurrection. The audio was obtained and released by The New York Times. Here now is an edited portion of one of those calls. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this will pass. And it would be my recommendation we should be done. Um, I mean, that would be my take, but I don't think he would take it. But I don't know. 
So Heidi, how did this audio lead to him getting a standing ovation from his House Republican colleagues? Look, I'm just like we saw with J.D. Vance, the new lesson here is that the past is all forgiven as long as you're a good soldier today. All McCarthy had to do was say, hey, it was the bad media. They took me out of context. Uh, these were just various scenarios that I was outlining. Don't let the press divide us. And the real tell, Amna, was when not just his traditional allies like Steve Scalise rallied behind him, but that the Trump wing, folks like Marjorie Taylor Greene, Jim Jordan, who almost cost McCarthy his leadership in 2015, had his back on this. And it's, it's really a testament to how uh, far he's gone to bring the far right into the broader GOP tent. Uh, he's given them committee leadership positions. Jim Jordan is now potentially in line to be the next House Judiciary Chair. If the Republicans take control of the House again, he has raised ungodly amounts of money and given those to a lot of these members. His joint fundraising committee has raised more than $65 million and given about $58 million to House Republicans. All of these things uh, have really helped shore up his position, but probably most importantly, is it the big guy, Trump, gave him a pass. Jeff, we should note there are some primaries coming up, right, starting in just a few weeks. What about those? What role do those play and, and why how? So many House Republicans are defending McCarthy right now. There certainly are. You know, I think, I think Heidi said it really well. The, but I also think it's important to note, as we were reporting on this, that McCarthy misled people when he said that that conversation didn't happen. And, and then he was caught because of those tapes. So that may be dismissed by his Republican colleagues, and that is their decision. And clearly the standing ovation is a reflection of the fact that um, they are forgiving and, and forgetting, but um, it doesn't change the fact that it happened. Uh, to your question about the, the upcoming primaries, yeah, I mean, these are, there, there are members who want Trump support, um, some of whom have gotten it, and McCarthy is still seen as being tied to Trump, and um, President Trump has also essentially dismissed um, this, this conversation and the reporting about this. So it really all comes back to, and Heidi again made this point, um, the fact that the former president is still backing McCarthy gives all of these others who are um, in the conference and are running for re-election or running for election cover, and they're using that. Well, Heidi, not everybody is standing behind McCarthy, right? We should note Republican Florida Congressman Matt Gates is among them. His name came up directly in the leaked audio as one of the lawmakers whose rhetoric, quote, put people in jeopardy, according to McCarthy. Have we heard a response from Gates? He really was the only one. I think he was probably surprised by that. And given that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, was among those as well, who you would have expected to... Uh, back him up on that. But no, I mean, he's making his own calculation, and it may be a flawed calculation of what we saw from the past, viewing McCarthy as a McConnell-like figure who Trump still likes to use as a favorite, um, you know, person who he, he beats up on. It's a very different situation here with McCarthy. McCarthy has pledged his loyalty now years ago. He's not someone who um, is viewed as like M Mitch McConnell to President Trump, and that's probably the most important thing. I mean, I haven't heard a response, um, but he's clearly making what is a calculation that maybe Republicans would have made a year or two 
ago when caught with something like this, uh, you would have thought the initial reaction was, oh, this will be devastating. McCarthy's toast. It's over for him. But we've seen enough now that Trump is out of office that he's pretty much willing to almost forgive anything in that previous context now that he is out as long as you are willing to pledge your allegiance and show that you're willing to be a good soldier in the here and now. And Jeff, what does all this tell us about January 6th, what we're learning? I mean, we just saw more than 2,000 text messages published by CNN, messages that were sent or received by former President Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, between that January 6th insurrection and President Biden's inauguration. There was one text in which Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene said, quote, in our private chat with only members, several are saying the only way to save our republic is for Trump to call for martial law. What else did we learn? What other details emerged from those texts? Martial law misspelled, I believe, and also with an explanation that she didn't know what that meant. Um, the, the, the texts that CNN got are um, just paint, paint a, an incredibly large and fulsome picture of what happened that day. And they include um, a, a lot of really worried texts from people who were on the Hill as well as uh, former chief of staff, former president chiefs of staff like Mick Mulvaney, saying, Mark, he needs to stop this now. Um, and, and others saying, the president needs to stop this, ASAP. It just, it just shows, I think, how urgent people felt about what was happening on January 6th that day. And that is useful as a contrast to how largely Republicans, with a couple notable exceptions, are now playing down what happened. I think to get to your question, the the fact that the January 6th committee is planning some public hearings coming up in, I believe in June, will certainly bring this um, story and this day back to the forefront. It will give um, the people who have done some investigating a chance to show what they have found. I think it will also put Republicans on the spot, but, to kind of bring a couple threads of conversation together, the fact that the the um, the Republicans who are in charge and who are running for re-election now have pretty successfully played this down with their base um, and and continue to sort of either dismiss or deny some of the things that they said that day seems to be having an impact um, with them, or at least seems, to, I should say that differently, it seems to be being successful for them uh, in a way that the committee is probably not happy about. Well, Cheryl, what about those hearings, right? We know that they're likely to be scheduled public hearings to begin in June. Democratic chairman of that House Select Committee, Benny Thompson, said they hope to issue a final report on the investigation in early autumn. Talk to me about the timing. Why is the timing for those hearings and the results so critical for House Democrats? Well, I think the timing is critical because you have the November midterm elections um, uh, coming up in November, and they probably want to have them before the summer, before people kind of tune out of what's going on in Washington. I think that these hearings could be very, very extraordinary, much like the Watergate hearings, very, very compelling uh, visually. We know that the committee uh, may hire a writer and wants to do a multimedia presentation. I imagine much like the presentation that the Trump impeachment prosecutors did um, in the Senate during his second impeachment trial. But I think the big question is whether or not these hearings will change anybody's mind. Like, unlike... uh, 
the Watergate era. We, you know, when we were very polarized, but we are even more polarized now. And people on both sides are so dug in about what happened on January 6th that I'm not sure it will change anyone's mind. But what it will do is kind of lay out a narrative in gripping fashion to help Americans kind of understand what happened that day to sort of connect the dots and put all the pieces together in a chronology that um, explains the Democrats' version of events, certainly, which is that President Trump and his allies conspired to overturn a peaceful, uh, the peaceful transfer of power to thwart that and, and put American democracy in grave danger. Well, Heidi, there's another big political story I want to put to you in response to falsehoods and lies about the 2020 election being stolen or rigged. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has signed a bill that will actually create a new police election force. So we are creating for the first time ever uh, in-state government an office of election crimes and security to be able to prosecute voter fraud. Heidi, there have been multiple audits and investigations. There's no credible evidence that the 2020 presidential election was insecure. What what should we understand about this new Florida law? And yet, Amna, they say that they are forming this to review said false uh, fraud allegations and to conduct preliminary investigations. And look, I, the reason I think this is really important, Amna, is because I'm looking at what's happening in numerous battleground states going into 2024. And this is very instructive because whatever the flavor is, what you're seeing here is that Republicans are making this false notion that election integrity was compromised in 2020, and we're going to do something about it in 2024. It's all seemingly to create this false impression that something was very wrong, went very wrong in 2020. And as opposed to 2020, we're going to stand up these mechanisms, which essentially uh, may make voting harder. Uh, will set up more formal channels to challenge votes. Now, critics say this is totally unnecessary. Uh, For instance, in this particular case with DeSantis, you have local prosecutors who can take care of and are there to handle these issues of whether there were actually any election crimes. And I might say, Amna, that several months ago, I interviewed a cross-section of U.S. attorneys coming in from around the country who had been in a number of these battleground states, and none of them said that they saw any evidence of wide-scale election fraud or that this was a serious issue. And, of of course, um, I must mention also the Associated Press tally, which found 475 potential cases of voter fraud, just 475, out of 25.5 million ballots cast in the six battleground states. This is concerning, and I'll just close on this, because when you're talking about involving law enforcement, You go back to what happened in 2020 with the Michigan sheriff. I don't know if you all remember this gentleman named Darleaf who wanted to actually seize voting machines. So Mm -hmm. this is definitely a hot spot to watch uh, going into the next round of elections. Well, two Trump-era immigration policies were challenged in court this week. The first is Remain in Mexico, which forces asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their cases wind through American courts. This week, the Supreme Court heard arguments challenging the Biden administration's ability to end that policy. The second is Title 42. That's a health policy that allows the U.S. to keep migrants out of the states while the pandemic is going on. The Biden administration says it wants to end that policy by May 23rd, but a district judge in Louisiana 
has blocked the administration from winding down the program. So, Cheryl, let's start with the Supreme Court. What what exactly is being argued there in, in that case about the Remain in Mexico program? So at issue, as you said, is the Remain in Mexico program, which applies to people who left a third country and traveled through Mexico to get to the U.S. border. And the Trump administration put this policy in place in the beginning of 2019, and literally tens of thousands of people were at the border in encampments waiting for immigration hearings. So President Biden came office with, came into office vowing that he was going to end this program couple of states, uh, Texas and Missouri, sued, and some lower courts reinstated it. And so now it's at the Supreme Court, and that issue is whether federal immigration laws require returning immigrants who arrive by land and who cannot be detained. And I talked to my colleague, Adam Liptak, who covers the Supreme Court about this, and he said that the justices seemed really uh, confounded by the by the arguments. And his takeaway was that the court might not, in the end, accept the broadest version of Texas's argument, which is that immigration laws require sending everyone who can't be detained back to Mexico. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a complicated topic because it involves the U.S. in a way setting policy for other countries or intervening in, in the business of other nations. Well, Heidi, what about this other program, Title 42? On Wednesday, a district judge temporarily blocked the Biden administration from winding it down. What happened there? Yeah, our system, Amna, has not been built to handle the levels of border crossings uh, that we're we're seeing right now. Uh, At the same time, President Biden is under intense pressure from the progressive wing of the party To end this, because it was introduced as a measure to uh, control the spread of COVID, Um, but ending it, we don't have the funds to build the facilities uh, to 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 basically house some of these people who are coming in, given the levels that we're seeing. Um, So the president is really in in a really tough space here because you're seeing now already nine different vulnerable Democratic senators publicly express their concern about this. At the same time, he's ex- he's facing intense pressure from the progressive wing, which is really important to keep those folks happy heading into the midterms. Uh, but we're expecting that if this does get rolled back, it's blocked right now by a federal judge, but if it does get rolled back in May, another massive surge right before the midterm. So not only are we seeing some of these vulnerable Democrats like Mark Kelly, Raphael Warnock express concern about this, but even now some of his allies like Senator Chris Coons, um, who are saying that uh, this, this, is, this is a problem if we roll this back and we see a huge surge right before the midterm. So the question now is, is there a way for him to kind of back away from this with a face-saving measure? Um, if the courts just keep it in place, that would be one potential way out. But more broadly, we're now also seeing, I'm hearing uh, talks again between Democrats and Republicans on the Hill about returning once again uh, to an effort that has really eluded members, but presenting all of this in just like a broader framework for the need for broader immigration reform, because these are all patchwork. These are all Band-Aid solutions, Omna. We are rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A.
You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. This week, President Biden suggested he may be willing to cancel some student loan debt, but not $50,000 worth. Jeff, back in March of 2020, while he was campaigning for president, President Biden tweeted this. He said, we should forgive a minimum of $10,000 per person of federal student loans. But since taking office, Biden has avoided making any kind of direct promises to cancel that student loan debt. So why is he showing this willingness now? Great question, Amna. I think part of the answer to that is the midterms, which is kind of hanging over our entire conversation today and and is hanging over Washington until November. He is under pressure from progressives, including uh, Senator Warren and Senator Sanders, and the young people across the country on the the left and and progressive side who supported him to fulfill that promise. And um, it hasn't happened yet, but he he is definitely considering it. And you're right. He he did say uh, this week that he's not considering $50,000, but he indicated apparently in a meeting with some members of the Hispanic con- uh, caucus um, who pressed him on canceling $10,000 specifically, um, he said back to them or said back to um, one of the, the congressmen, you're going to like what I do. So that's certainly a hint or a signal that he's moving in the direction of 10,000. And I think he's doing it, A, because he believes in it, but B, because he's under pressure from the left. Cheryl, let's talk about that, that number figure. Do, you, do we know where that 50 grand came from and why he won't consider it? Who might benefit from where he actually goes with this? Well, I think 50 grand just seems like maybe too too high a number. And President Biden is walking a fine line here, right? He's got to satisfy his progressives, his left wing of the party. But he's also got to satisfy the moderates whose elections need to be won in order for him to continue to have any power. So I think 10,000 is kind of like a middle um, a middle ground or, or actually sort of a, on the lower end of the ground. Um, the White House recently announced that this pause on student loan uh, repayments would be extended through August 31st. So he has a little bit of time to decide. Um, And I guess we will, you know, he said that he'll be making a decision soon. I think he said over the next few weeks, although he really does have until the end of the summer. And it's a question now of whether Congress would put something into law or whether he would do it um, on his own executive authority. Well, Heidi, we should mention, as we did, he did run on it. We know progressive Democrats, as Cheryl mentioned, have long called for this. Do we know what's held the president back? We don't know what's held him back other than legislatively. It's difficult to get it done. And that was his first priority was to do this through Congress. But it doesn't seem that they have the votes, Omna. And so now the question is whether he can do something by executive order. But to the political benefit here and the, uh, the cost-benefit analysis, I, I don't know how he's going to come out on this just because, first of all, we've seen already the disappointment from some progressives that he's not going to hit 50 grand. And actually, if we're talking about 10 grand, they're really not going to be happy with that. The NAACP already tweeting at him. At the same time, it's going to anger others. Uh, uh, we've heard from Senator Mitt Romney, for instance, saying, what's next? Are you going to forgive auto loans? What about credit card debt? Um, what we probably can expect to see is that based on past comments from the White House, they've called the 50000 a giveaway to well-off students, um, given that 
they've made those comments and what I'm hearing, they may means test this. I think Jen Psaki, the press secretary, said that the other day, basically tailor it to middle and income uh, middle and lower income borrowers, which would be something that would be more popular versus giving it just to everyone across the board. Um, and I guess we can expect something on this within the next few weeks. Well, we're seeing listeners weigh in on this too. A couple of quick comments. Mike emails and says, I am not unsympathetic to those with large student debts. However, these loans were freely taken. I see loan forgiveness as an attempt to buy votes. But Mary notes this, quote, one major problem is high interest rates. Financial institutions are charging 6 and 7% interest uh, and a time when other types of loans only bring 2 or 3%. It makes it difficult to catch up. Uh, another big story from the White House I do want to ask you about. On Tuesday, President Biden used his clemency power for the first time to reduce the prison sentences of 75 drug offenders. He also issued three pardons. Jeff, what can we learn about Biden's priorities from this move? Well, a couple things. Um, he's, he's emphasizing these ty this type of action for nonviolent crime and um, commuted the sentences of ni 75 nonviolent offenders. Uh, as well as pardoned uh, the three people who were convicted of nonviolent uh, drug offenses. Um, one was uh, a man named Abraham Bolden, who was a former U.S. Secret Service agent and was the first black person uh, to serve on a presidential detail. He's now 86. Um, this is, it's interesting as well, I think, that it took until now um, in his term for him to, to do this, this round of, of pardons and commutations. I suspect uh, we'll see more. Um, the issue of criminal justice reform was an, another one among many that he campaigned on. And uh, I think there is continued pressure. We keep talking about pressure from the left, but there is pressure and there is also some support, honestly, for, um, for criminal justice reform from both sides. So you'll recall that President Trump did um, some measures on criminal justice reform that got bipartisan support. So that's the context, and that's some of what we learned. Cheryl, how does this move fit into the broader push, into Biden's broader push for criminal justice reform? What should we un understand about that? Well, I, I find these pardons um, or commutations really interesting. You know, President Biden, when he was a senator, was a driver behind the 1994 crime bill. And that bill was is now roundly criticized by people, frankly, across the political spectrum for creating an era of mass incarceration, uh, particularly for nonviolent drug offenders. That was the bill that established kind of the sentencing disparity for between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. And I really feel that President Biden wants to, I don't want to use the word atone, but per he wants to reverse some of that. He has said that, you know, he wants to um, address this. He's talked about um, helping people become who are who have served time return to their families and become contributing members of their communities and that that is a way to address recidivism and decrease crime. So I, I think that this comes actually from a really heartfelt place uh, in within the president as well as a political place as Jeff mentioned. 
I do want to ask you all about another big story in the business world. Uh, this week, Twitter accepted a $44 billion buyout from Elon Musk. The world's richest man is expected to gain total control of the company in about three to six months when the deal closes. So Heidi Musk, uh, as I'm sure you know, calls himself a quote-unquote free speech absolutist. He has vowed to put that philosophy front and center at Twitter. What do we know about his vision for the platform? That's the problem. We don't know anything other than platitudes. I, I've seen a quote from him that said, if in doubt, let the speech exist. Well, the question, Amna, is not what's going to happen now with articles like the New York Post that uh, is famously referred to when Elon Musk is talking about free speech that's been limited. He was critical of the fact that the New York Post initially was censored on Twitter for the Hunter Biden laptop story. But that is not the majority of the speech that is being limited on Twitter. The question is how that philosophy is going to coexist with hate speech, with pornography, with harassment, with disinformation, uh, with folks saying, you know, inject yourself with bleach if you get COVID, things like that. Is that considered free speech? And there's a lot of free speech advocates as well as critics of Elon Musk are saying that he, he just doesn't have a solid uh, foundation of what this is going to look like. It's gonna, he's going to need an army of individuals who are going to be advising him because prior to these uh, restrictions or the controlling of this content, what we saw on Twitter, Amna, was that it was a very hostile place for particular groups. Uh, women journalists, for instance, um, the, the online mobs. Um, and what this could lead to is the de facto silencing of these groups. The First Amendment uh, is not absolute. And, uh, you know, what we saw in 2016, for instance, with Facebook, uh, that that without any kind of content controls or policing was that it became a primary vehicle for disinformation. So a lot of questions here and not many answers. Of course, this is going to take a while before he actually takes control months. There's a lot of legal hurdles still, but um, a lot of answers to be uh, to be given here. A lot of questions still around Elon Musk's potential Twitter takeover that's coming up. But Cheryl, I want to ask you about just the business side of things. We should note one day after Twitter publicly accepted Musk's deal, Tesla shares fell 12.2%. That is a loss of more than $125 billion in market value. Could all of that jeopardize the Twitter deal? Well, I think that's a, that's a question that many people are asking, which is if Elon Musk sees his primary endeavor, his core business, take a nosedive, is he really going to want to go through with this? Um, he has said that he is going to fund the $44 billion takeover with uh, some debt and, and a loan, a big loan, $12.5 billion secured against his um, stake in Tesla. But he hasn't said how he's going to finance the remaining $21 billion dollars. Uh, and that raises the possibility that he might need to sell more shares in, in Tesla. And that is creating pressure on Tesla's stock. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, <laughs> Elon Musk is not a predictable person, right? So we don't know what he is going to do. But there have been questions about, you know, when all is said and done, is this deal really going to go through if it seriously hurts the valuation of Tesla? 
Well, as you all have noted, there are still a lot of questions. And I should note, we spent a whole hour talking about that Elon Musk Twitter takeover earlier this week. Anyone interested can find that conversation on our website. That is the1a.org. I do want to turn now to the latest economic numbers. According to a new report from the Commerce Department, gross domestic product fell 1.4% in the first quarter of 2022. That's after more than a year of rapid growth. So, Jeff, let's break it down a little bit. What is behind this decline? What should we understand? Well, um, there's the supply chain issues, there's inflation, there's uh, concern within the um, American public about economy uh, or economic worries and the possibility of a recession. The, um, the president and the White House, of course, are pleased with uh, more or less with where unemployment figures have been, but uh, employers continue to have struggles getting um, getting people hired. And um, so it's, it's just, just a bunch of factors out there. And I think to bring the economics and the politics together, that is something that um, I think President Biden and the White House are concerned about and wanting to really hammer uh, in the next weeks and months um, that despite some of the concerns that they also have um, what they believe is a good economic story to tell in terms of the um, where where the U.S. economy is compared to uh, a couple years ago and when when the pandemic started. But there are headwinds, and the inflation continues to be a, a really really big one, um, which President Biden and and his team are largely blaming on uh, the pandemic and the Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But it is a problem that he owns. And uh, as a result, it's going to be one that Republicans use to hammer him uh, going into the midterms. Heidi, what about the impact of the economy moving forward, especially in, in voters' minds? We know it's one of those bipartisan issues that re- remains top of everyone's minds. The president's been out and about more trying to sell that economic message. Do you think they can change people's minds? It's always about the economy. And the question is what's going to happen between now and six months from now. And it's also about perception. And that's why if you listen to some of the framing that the administration is trying to create going into these next few months, um, the inflation numbers, the rising gas prices, initially the message that they were going to use was that this is due to Putin's war. Well, that's not necessarily going to get them very far with voters and with swing voters. Um, You know, consumption is down because of that. That's part of what is um, leading to this. And the newest framing that I'm hearing from administration officials is that um, they're going to blame this on um, folks just just uh, uh, on the on the economy um, really stalling here because um, consumption is down and these are all forces that are outside of the president's control because this is happening in many economies now, especially with the war, and also blame it on price gouging by companies. If you look at what happened, for instance, with with gas prices going up immediately in the aftermath of the war being announced, the administration was leaning heavily on that message. They were also talking about uh, big ag and food companies gouging consumers. But the question is whether Americans are going to latch onto that and believe that versus this is just mismanagement of the economy. 
a big story this week and surely in the weeks and months ahead. A big, big thanks to all of my guests. Cheryl Gay Stolberg is a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Heidi Prisbella is a Washington correspondent, formerly of NBC News. And Jeff Mason is Reuters White House correspondent. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Wene's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. Chris Castano is our digital editor. You're listening to the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. This is 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Amna Nawaz, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. It's time for the global edition of the News Roundup. Our unity at home, our unity with our allies and partners, and our unity with the Ukrainian people is sending an unmistakable message to Putin. You will never succeed in dominating Ukraine. The president is asking Congress for $33 billion in supplemental aid for Ukraine to help beat back the Russians. That is where we start again this week. We'll introduce our Friday panel in just a moment. We start with retired Rear Admiral John Kirby, press spokesman for the Pentagon, who we spoke to just before we came on air. Admiral Kirby, I want to begin with the latest from Ukraine. So we know that Russia continues to carry out strikes across the country, including some missile strikes in Kyiv just last night. Does that tell you that they're not just focused on territorial gains in the Donbass region? No, not necessarily. I mean, what we're seeing with some of the strikes outside of the Donbass are efforts by the Russians to... Uh, affect the Ukrainians' ability to resupply themselves and to reinforce themselves. So many of the targets, uh, and we don't have perfect visibility, but many of the targets are military-related, or at least they're, it, it, it appears as if they're trying to hit military-related and maybe not hitting them successfully. Like For instance, we know they hit a residential area in Kyiv, but our general assessment is they were trying to go after military production targets. You don't believe that the Kremlin still has their sights on other parts of the country outside of Right the now, our assessment is that they are still very focused on the east, in the Donbass specifically, mm-hmm. and in the south, Mariupol, and uh, in that area north of Crimea. Um, everything we're seeing in terms of the, their concentrated military activity is centered on those two parts of the country. Well, let me ask you about Mariupol now, which has now been under brutal siege for two months. It's become a sort of symbol of the Ukrainian resistance. Forces there making a last stand inside the Azovstal steel plant, hundreds of civilians also trapped inside. So Russia already controls most of the city, which is essentially destroyed, except for the plant. So I want to ask you, what is left for the U.S. or NATO to do that could keep the plant from falling? I think, you know, what we're trying to do is make sure that the Ukrainians have uh, the kinds of capabilities uh, and, quite frankly, information. We're providing them information uh, so that they can uh, defend themselves, so that they can um, can secure uh, areas inside the, the east and in the south. We should take that to mean intelligence you're providing them about Russian forces? We are forces? providing them uh, useful intelligence uh, every day. And so we are we are trying to enable them uh, to be able to resist, uh, continue resisting the, the Russian advances in Mariupol or elsewhere. So if Mariupol falls, that basically gives Russians a key land bridge connecting their forces in the south and in the east. It frees up a number of battalions, too, to join fighting elsewhere. What does it mean for the broader war if Russia fully controls Mariupol? 
Yeah, there's a couple of things here. One, it's a huge economic port um, with access right to the Sea of Azov, which, of course, opens up into the Black Sea. Two, as you said, it does um, sort of sort of finalize this land bridge that we know they want to uh, they want to connect Crimea to the Donbass, although uh, they already can go from one region to the next. Mariupol is really the last thing that stands in their way. And then the third thing we think they're trying to do is, and we're already starting to see signs of this, that the, they want to move north out of Mariupol uh, so that they can encircle Ukrainian troops that are in uh, the, 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 the Donbass area. So as you look at a map, You'll see them pushing from the east out of Russia into the east of the part of the Donbass. They're pushing north towards and out of a town called Isium in the north part of the Donbass, and they want to push south coming out of Mariupol and Berdansk. Now, we are beginning to see signs, uh, as of yesterday, that Russian forces that were dedicated to the fighting in Mariupol are now leaving that area and heading to the north. So you can start to see this this pinching effort uh, from three sides by the Russians uh, beginning to take shape. I will also add, though, that their progress has been incremental, uneven, and slow. Mm-hmm. They are resisted by the Ukrainians at almost every turn. Uh, they are very wary of too, getting too far out ahead of their supply lines. They don't want to make the same mistakes that they made uh, in trying to, uh, to take Kiev, where they got way too far out in front of their food and fuel and spare parts. So, Admiral, their, their progression has been slow and uneven, I hear you saying, but there has been progression. They seem to be learning from earlier stalled efforts. They are better now at combining air and ground operations, that's according to U.S. officials better at resupplying forces in the field. Overall, they as a force have more weapons, they have more vehicles, they have greater air power than Ukraine. Does a longer drawn-out conflict that the U.S. seems to be signaling is underway, does that benefit Russia? Uh, it doesn't benefit anybody. It certainly doesn't benefit but the Ukrainians. But between the two forces, who has the upper benefit. hand? It absolutely doesn't benefit Russia here uh, to prolong this conflict anymore. Look, Mr. Putin, this is a war of choice. He could end it today by leaving uh, Ukraine right now, taking his forces out. This war could end right now. Obviously, he has shown no indications that he wants to do that. So we are going to continue to do everything we can to give the Ukrainians the advantages they need on the battlefield. And I would add that they are fighting back bravely. The, the Russians have not made as much progress in the Donbass as they wanted to make even just a couple of weeks ago. And that's a real statement of the bravery and the skill of the Ukrainians in the fight. I hear you saying U.S. will do everything it can, and I want to press a bit on that because just when you look at their forces, the number of soldiers, Russia has nearly a million active personnel, two million reserves. Ukraine had close to about 200,000 when the invasion began. Have you ruled out unequivocally sending U.S. forces to bolster those Ukrainian troops? The commander-in-chief, President Biden, has been uh, very, very clear uh, from the very beginning. There will be no U.S. forces fighting in Ukraine, uh, and that remains the case today. Uh, What we are doing is helping Ukraine be able to defend itself. And I want to just put a little bit of what you said in context here. Yes, the Russians have greater numbers. Uh, Yes, they have more assembled combat power available to them. And yes, now, because they're focusing on the, the Donbass particularly, they have shorter supply lines back into Russia. All that is true. That said, um, uh, of the 90 so or so battalion tactical groups that they have dedicated to the area, they're not all at full operational strength. They have suffered attrition. They have lost troops. They have lost capabilities. Uh, the Ukrainians actually have more tanks available to them than the Russians do right now. Uh, they have lost aircraft. And the other thing is that even though they're trying to overcome these challenges, like you mentioned some of them, like logistics, command and control is another one. There's no evidence that they have actually 
uh, accomplished uh, learning from all their past mistakes. There's no evidence that they have overcome these challenges. And we're also seeing signs increasingly uh, that uh, unit morale is, is, is deeply suffering. The, these conscripts that have just recently been thrown into the fight, they come in with high morale because they've been feasting and digesting Russian propaganda now for weeks. Then they get in the fight with the Ukrainians and, and the morale plummets. So President Biden announced yesterday he's asking for $33 billion in additional aid from Congress to support Ukraine's military efforts against Russia. Admiral Kirby, a good chunk of that is for humanitarian assistance, refugees in neighboring countries, and food assistance. How much of that is just for military security aid, and where specifically is that going? About $20 billion of the $33 billion is dedicated towards military assistance. Now, $4 billion of that 20 will be run by the State Department to provide foreign military financing uh, for Ukraine's uh, military. Uh, and the $16 billion left will be used by the Defense Department. Some of it will be used for drawdown authority for us to actually go and take things off our shelves like we've been doing uh, and provide that to Ukraine. Some of it will be used to actually for the Defense Department to let contracts uh, to actually get more production of weapons and systems that the Ukrainians need, and then we'll turn it around and give it to them, but it'll require some contracting and production. Uh, And some of it will be used to help um, investments in, like, the critical munitions fund that this this would provide, an ability for us to to build up our stocks uh, of critical munitions that we know are not only useful in this crisis, but perhaps crises to come. Uh, And then some of it will be used for us to continue to support our operational costs of bolstering NATO's eastern flank. We don't talk about that much, but that's important. We've gone from 80,000 troops in Europe to over 100,000 on rotational or permanent borders, and they need to be supported. They too need food and fuel and, and be able to, uh, to provide spare parts for their operations. Let me ask you about that military and security support. As the U.S. and, and NATO is moving in more and heavier weaponry, it, it has to travel a long distance, right? It's got to go to the eastern part of the country where it's needed. How how worried are you about Russia interdicting some of those weapons and supplies as they move along those extended supply lines? We're constantly concerned about that. And obviously, we're being very careful about how we describe the the manner in which this material is getting into Ukraine and getting into operational units of the Ukrainian armed forces. Uh, but there's multiple routes, uh, multiple uh, shipment options. Uh, they, are, they are altered uh, over the course of days so that, uh, so that we can keep a sense of operational security here. And I can tell you that, and we were just in Europe just a few days ago, and we got to see some of this transshipment work for ourselves. I mean, the flow continues every single day. And we are getting faster and faster at moving things into the region from the United States. When the president signed the last order uh, for 72 howitzers just uh, uh, last week, within 48 hours of him signing the authorization for us to send additional howitzers, those howitzers were showing up in Europe. And within 24 hours or so after that, they were in Ukraine. As a matter of fact, of the 90 howitzers, these are, these are artillery pieces now that we're providing Ukraine, of the 90 that the president has authorized us to give Ukraine, more than half of them are in Ukraine right now. Have any of those supply lines been targeted? targeted so far? We have seen some sporadic efforts by the Russians to hit what they think uh, are potentially storage facilities of of shipments, Uh, but we have no indication that they have been successful in interdicting the flow uh, of weapons and systems uh, that the West is providing into Ukraine.
We've seen President Biden just ask for $33 billion more. He says that will last about five months. Are you saying the U.S. will continue to offer money, support, military aid to Ukraine as long as they are under threat from Russia? I think President Biden has been very clear. Again, we're going to continue to support Ukraine as, uh, as much as we can, as fast as we can. Um, no, nobody's putting a deadline on that support. We're working very, very hard. Yes, uh, this this package will give us about five months should Congress pass it, and we urge Congress to do, to do that. Um, and then we'll continue to look at it going forward. That is retired Rear Admiral John Kirby. He is the Pentagon's press secretary. Admiral Kirby, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Helping me wrap up the biggest international stories of the week are Indira Lakshmanan, senior executive editor at National Geographic. Indira, great to have you back. Great to be here. Thank you. Also with us, Jennifer Williams, deputy editor at Foreign Policy. Jen, thanks for being here. Always a pleasure. And with us is Vivian Salama, national security reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Vivian, thanks for your time. Thanks, Amna. So let's start in Kyiv. On Thursday, Russian airstrikes hit the Ukrainian capital as U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres visited the city to meet Ukraine's president. President Zelensky accused Russia's leadership of trying to, quote, humiliate the U.N. and everything that the organization represents. Earlier this week, on Tuesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin sat down at the Kremlin's now infamously long table to meet Guterres. The U.N. chief called the meeting, quote, useful. First of all, because it was possible to tell President Putin that the Russian invasion is uh, against uh, the Charter of the United Nations, is a violation of the territorial integrity of Ukraine, and that this war must end as quickly as possible. When you talk to Vladimir Putin, do you use the word war? Do you use the word invasion? Look, I say exactly the same things in Moscow that I say in Kyiv and that I say in New York. And that is how the United Nations can be credible. That was United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking to CNN's Anderson Cooper. So, Jennifer, what more do we know uh, first about the attack on the Capitol and what, if anything, was achieved by this meeting at the Kremlin? Yeah, it was really remarkable just to see, you know, Guterres is going, you know, went to Moscow to try to, you know, first help negotiate this humanitarian corridor to evacuate uh, people from Mariupol. Um, but, you know, more generally, as he said, to try to kind of negotiate, a, a, you know, a, a path toward peace or path toward conversations and negotiations. And, you know, Putin, while he's there, gives him the kind of standard uh, rigmarole that he has been saying over and over again to justify his war in Ukraine. Um, and then, you know, we see Guterres go to Ukraine. He goes to Kiev. And while he's there, five Russian cruise missiles target Kiev. Um, it was just a remarkable, I mean, my, my jaw hit the floor when I saw this happen. Um, it was just kind of a stunning, I guess, statement of how Putin sees, uh, you know, the UN, how Putin sees negotiations. Um, I, I can't imagine that it's going to be quite so easy to send people to chat with Putin, knowing that he has behaved this way. Um, I, I think it's just a remarkable moment Um you know, we see Zelensky, uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine has over and over again said that, you know, while he, he's trying to defend his country against Russia, he wants to sit down. He's called to sit down with Putin over and over again. Um, you know, he is very much interested in pursuing diplomacy, you know, basically at any cost because he's trying to defend his country. And I think this, this moment really shows where Putin stands on, on the idea of negotiations. 
Well, on Wednesday, the Russian national energy giant Gazprom announced it was cutting off natural gas exports to Poland and Bulgaria. Both countries refused to pay Russia for gas in rubles. Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, said Poland and Bulgaria are now receiving gas from their EU neighbors. She told reporters in Europe, rather, she told reporters Europe would not be blackmailed by Moscow. This is something the European Commission has been preparing for in close coordination and solidarity with member states and international partners. Today, the Kremlin failed once again in his attempt to sow division among member states. The era of Russian fossil fuel in Europe is coming to an end. Europe is moving forward on energy issues. Indira, who does this hurt the most, Poland and Bulgaria or or Russia, which now has two fewer countries ready to buy its gas and pay in rubles? Yeah, that's a really good question. Of course, Russia is banking on the idea that it can use uh, its the United the European Union's dependence on Russian gas as basically one of its last remaining cards that Putin has to fight back against Western military support for Ukraine. But what's interesting here is that, of course, the new sanctions um, deny uh, Western countries and NATO countries and EU countries who are buying gas from Russia the ability to pay in rubles because of, you know, because of sanctions. Uh, Or rather, I should say that Putin wants countries to pay in rubles because of international sanctions that are hitting him. Poland and Bulgaria refused to do this. Um, You know, in the short term, you could say that it would hurt those countries because Bulgaria imported more than 70% of its natural gas from Russia um, in recent years. Poland is much less reliant, only 45% of its natural gas. Poland, keep in mind also, is the most vocally anti-Russia of the countries in, I would say, in NATO, um, has really stepped up its voice. But across the board, the EU has an issue because it imported 155 billion cubic meters of natural gas from Russia last year, which means 45% of all of its gas imports were from Russia. Now, if they bite the bullet and transition to other sources, then Russia is really the one that is hurt. Russia has blustered by saying, we can switch over to other buyers, we can switch over to China, but that takes time. Uh, you can't just overnight snap your fingers and change the way that you're sending gas. And right now, remember, they're doing it through pipelines across Europe. You can't just snap your fingers and start selling it to other buyers. So I think ultimately, although Russia has been trying to hold this up as a weapon they have against the West, I would say it's a weapon that the West has against Russia to the extent that European countries can stop buying gas. It's going to stop funding Putin's war in Ukraine, which is an argument that Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has made all along. And Vivian, what about the U.S. support for Ukraine in all of this? We just saw President Biden submit a new request to Congress for another $33 billion in aid for Ukraine. You heard Admiral Kirby, the Pentagon spokesperson, say $20 billion of that is just military and security aid. What kind of an impact is that going to make at this stage of the war? Well, they're really trying to cater the aid at this point in time to the needs on the battlefield of the Ukrainian military, of the Ukrainian government. And obviously those needs have been changing all along. At some points we saw that they needed greater air support. Of course, we remember President Zelensky even calling for a no-fly zone, which was sort of a non-starter with Western countries. And so they've been trying to compensate um, and really help them uh, secure their skies in different ways. Um, 
And now that the war is starting to sort of uh, consolidate a bit, although obviously we've just seen uh, attacks on Kiev, and so it's not written in stone, but it's starting to consolidate um Generally speaking, to the east, um, the needs are changing. Obviously, um, Russians can use short-range missiles and things like that to attack because of the fact that the region is so close to their uh, border. They can do it from even from Russia and um, and and hit their targets securely. And so, the U.S. is really trying to cater that support to the evolving needs of of the Ukrainian military and to do so in a way in which they can sustain uh, the momentum that they've seen in recent weeks um, and continue. Um, one thing we were talking about just two weeks ago or so was the sinking of the uh, the battleship of Moskva in the Black Sea, the Russian uh, ship by Ukrainians. Um, and we're showing that there's really um, a great change in momentum, a great change in the um, sort of uh, morale of the Ukrainian military as far as um, these strategic and very significant military gains. But to, to continue doing that, they still need a lot of weapons. And there have been bottlenecks with a lot of the shipments that have been going on, although you just heard um, John Kirby talking about um, the effort to get the weapons into the hands of Ukrainian fighters as quickly as possible. That is absolutely the case. But there is a bottleneck at the same time in a lot of different places. And so they're really trying to iron out those kinks as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, one of the most significant changes, of course, has been uh, the change of the U.S. uh, as far as uh, sending diplomats back in. And that is part of this attempt to uh, continue to help Ukraine by having a diplomatic presence on the ground, too. A number of other countries have done that as well. At the same time, we should note Russia's foreign minister says that the threat of a nuclear war is, quote, very significant. In an interview for Russian TV, Sergei Lavrov stressed that the risks should not be underestimated. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin called the nuclear war rhetoric, quote, dangerous and unhelpful. That was shortly after his visit to Kiev. But State Department spokesperson Ned Price went even further. They have at every turn sought to deflect responsibility for their actions by attempting to shift blame to other parties, whether that's to the West, whether that is to uh, the United States. We think loose talk of nuclear escalation is especially irresponsible. It is the height of irresponsibility. Indira, who, if, if anyone, is taking this nuclear threat seriously? I think everyone needs to take it seriously. Uh, We've seen that Putin's behavior on Ukraine doesn't follow sort of logical global, (laughs) the global international order. And you could say that a lot of it has been done in the face of a very high cost that he's paying. Don't forget that the Russian military has been weakened by this two plus month military campaign in Ukraine already. They've lost Um, You know, they've lost a lot of weaponry. They've lost people. Um, It certainly doesn't look good that in two plus months they haven't been able to vanquish Ukraine when they're obviously a much bigger country and a much bigger military. So I think the idea that that Putin is lashing out and that Sergei Lavrov, his longtime foreign minister and loyalist, would warn the West not to underestimate these elevated risks of a nuclear conflict It's, you know, they're trying to send a message and draw a line in the sand. And I think that there are a lot of U.S. military analysts and global analysts who say it's the biggest threat we have since the Cold War. So I don't think it's an idle threat, um, but I think it's probably more bluster in terms of trying to warn the U.S. and others not to get involved. And, you know, I think that Russia's already 
probably shocked at the level of Western military support for Ukraine, even though the U.S. and its NATO allies haven't physically gotten involved themselves. And this $33 billion package that we're talking about in Congress is another example of, I would say, the West doing a lot more support for Ukraine than Putin would have guessed. Also this week on Wednesday, Russia released former Marine Trevor Reed in a prisoner exchange with the U.S. The family released a statement which read in part, quote, Today our prayers have been answered and Trevor is safely on his way back to the United States, end quote. Jennifer, what more can you tell us about the deal and, and whether it paves the way for other U.S. citizens who are currently detained in Russia to also come home? Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly possible. So just some background here. This um, this negotiation has been going on since basically before the war started. Um, so former Governor Bill Richardson of New Mexico, who's very well known for these kind of prisoner negotiations, prisoner release negotiations, hostage uh, release negotiations, if you want to call them, uh, internationally, he actually landed, um, you know, in, in Russia basically like the day before the invasion of Ukraine happened. And so they have been working on this for quite a while. Um, they have they tried really hard, they said, to keep it separate completely from the U.S. You know, response to the war in Ukraine. Now, how exactly they went about doing that is a masterclass in negotiations that I would love to learn about. Uh, because it's kind of hard to keep that separate, but they still managed to. So what they ended up doing is they they worked out this swap. Um, they swapped out um, Trevor Reed, who had been held for two years on these kind of charges of assault. His family said they were bogus. Uh, he was accused of assaulting two police officers in a kind of uh, drunken brawl in, in Moscow. Um, he was released in exchange for um, a prisoner who was being held in the United States, Konstantin Yaroshenko. Um, he was a Russian pilot. He had been sentenced to a, a pretty lengthy prison term here in the U.S. on uh, this cocaine trafficking charges. And so they made this swap. Um, now, whether this means that they can continue to to negotiate and get some of the other, you know, Americans who are be still being held in Russia, I, I think it's certainly a positive sign. Um, but the fact that it took all this time, you know, months now of negotiations, um, you know, it, it's going to be a while. These things take time. At the same time, the fact that they were, like I said, able to keep this somehow, you know, walled off from the broader fact that, you know, the, the U.S. is arming Ukraine in a fight against a Russian invasion, um, that's still going to be the, the elephant in the room for all of these negotiations. I do want to move on to news out of China as well. We know Beijing is scrambling to contain an Omicron outbreak in its continued fight against the coronavirus. It's now testing its 22 million residents and implementing lockdowns. David Rennie, our Friday News Roundup regular and The Economist Beijing bureau chief, spoke on Morning Edition this Wednesday. This is not just a very big city, it's the capital. It's where the big bosses live. And they have done everything for the last two years to keep COVID out of Beijing. We have uniquely strict rules here. And China did an extraordinary job for two years of keeping COVID levels kind of incredibly low. It involved incredibly tough controls. But Shanghai has just been hit by a massive wave of the Omicron variant. We currently have tens of millions of Chinese in cities around China, more or less locked down. And now, Omicron is beating at the gates of Beijing. So if you're an official, you're looking at the numbers, they're still very low. We had about 46 new cases today in a city of 22 million. So by American mm. standards, that's incredible. 
But if you're an official, you know that the political and the public health crisis of Omicron hitting Beijing is just vast. Indira, China has been notoriously strict when it comes to COVID policies. What could this mean for Beijing residents? Yeah, well, I do want to say that there is a political element here, too. President Xi Jinping has sort of been defined as the zero COVID president. I mean, among many other things, of course, but he's made it a real part of his agenda. And it's kind of strange that it's deja vu all over again, because this is like back to early 2020, when Wuhan, where the coronavirus outbreak started, was on a complete lockdown. And now we have Shanghai, um, a city of 25 million people in the financial hub of the whole country um, locked down. Now it's been a month. It's going into a fifth week. Um, it's not only hurting the people there who are have, facing food shortages, facing um, unable to get medical care for other problems, um, but it's also affecting supply chain. The Chinese stock market is tanking. Manufacturing operations are down. So it's definitely affecting the country. And in recent weeks, there have been more than 340 million people in China placed under some form of lockdown. So I think ultimately it's going to come down to authorities deciding whether they can live with a more endemic form of COVID like countries in the West have. Um, it makes people's objections to mask mandates in this country and elsewhere seem risible in comparison to being locked down completely um, with relatively fewer COVID cases. They also need to deal with vaccinating the elderly because those people are dying. Well, let's talk about what's been going on in El Salvador. This week, the country's lawmakers voted to extend what was originally a 30-day state of emergency. Just in the past month, the government says it's arrested more than 17,000 suspected gang members. So, Vivian, this state of emergency was put in place to combat gang violence in the region, but lay out for us just how large a problem that is in El Salvador problem and getting worse by the day, Amna. In fact, um, a lot of this was triggered particularly by events that happened over just one short weekend in late March when about 62 people were killed just over the weekend, a level of violence that really the country hasn't seen in years. Although gangs have for quite some time now controlled large bits of territory through brutality and fear in El Salvador and they've driven thousands of people to emigrate. Of course, we've seen some of that just through uh, the stories at our southern border here in the U.S. It's partly to save their own lives, the lives of their children, um, A lot, of, many of whom are being forcibly recruited by these gangs. And so in order to combat that, the uh, government imposed this state of emergency in response to that, that really deadly weakness Weekend. And they said that they've rounded up about 17,000 suspected gang members as a result of the state of emergency, um, which they believe is a success, so much so that they've decided to extend that state of emergency for another 30 days at least. However, on, on the UN and other rights groups are also criticizing the measure, saying that arrests are often arbitrary and they're based on a person's appearance or where they live um, and not necessarily on suspected criminal activity. And so thousands have been arrested, uh, many of them without warrants. Um, some have been reportedly subjected to uh, cruel, inhumane, and degrading treatment, according to the UN. And so there's a lot of concern that what was aimed at trying to um, tackle this violence is really becoming um, a way that the government can kind of um, stranglehold uh, people's rights uh, just based on, on, on these security measures. And Jennifer, what else should we understand about those arrests? I mean, the president called 
called the vote on that 30-day extension of the state of emergency, quote, the definition of democracy. But 17,000 people, how did they arrest so many people? Yeah, it's been this sweeping, massive crackdown. I mean, they are basically arresting anyone that they can accuse of being affiliated with gangs. There, there's no proof required. Um, it, basically, they can arrest children as young as 12, and, and they have been arresting people. If you fit the kind of physical profile they have decided is, you know, affiliated with, with gang affiliation, they will, they will pick you up. They will pick up family members, any kind of suspicion uh, anyone wants to, you know, whisper a rumor that so-and-so across the street, down the block, is affiliated with X or Y gang, they'll sweep them up. It's been incredibly remarkable to see and incredibly fast. You know, as we said, this was only started about a month ago uh, at the end of March. And so it's been really sweeping. What's remarkable, though, and I think what you really need to understand is that there was a poll that was done uh, of about 1,200 Salvadorans last week, and it found that 91% approve of these measures. And Nayib Bukele, the president, remains one of the world's most popular leaders. So despite all of this, or in, in, you know, in fact, because potentially of all of this, um, his popularity is very high, which I think speaks to the kind of degree of gang violence that the country has suffered. And, you know, the real fear that people have that it is out of control, that the government doesn't have control. Um, so I think it's really stark uh, a kind of comparison when you have all these, you know, human rights organizations very rightly criticizing what's going on, and yet the vast majority of the citizens of the country, um, with the exception of families of those who have been detained and those who have been detained themselves, seem to really support these measures. Let's move on now to global climate news. India is grappling with record temperatures. Six million people in Southern California are now subject to harsh new water restrictions. And today marks the 150th anniversary of Arbor Day. So, Indira, talk to us about Arbor Day. What more should we know about that? Yeah, um, we at National Geographic have spent the last year focused on what we could do in terms of deep storytelling to say, um, you know, to make a mark for the 150th Arbor Day today. And of course, this whole month that we're bringing to a close is Earth Month. So we dedicated our May issue to trees and forests. And you can see it all on natgeo.com. And the biggest point we were trying to make is that, rightly, we are all worried about climate emergency and the climate crisis. And yet forests are our biggest ticket and our biggest chance um, and should be our top priority for fighting climate change because of the protection they give us in terms of the carbon that forests store. Now, we're all familiar with deforestation as the biggest and most familiar threat to forests. But in fact, what is underappreciated is that climate change itself is killing forests because of increased heat and drought and inf insect infestations. And that's also creating a major threat not only to us as humans, but to wildlife, like the rare forest elephants of Gabon. So what we looked at is how you can learn to protect forests better, managing them intelligently. There's a lot of wisdom to be learned from Australian Aborigines and Native Americans about how they used controlled burning planned fires to prevent wildfires, for example. Also about planting trees selectively and appropriately choosing the right species for the right places rather than just trying to maximize the total number of trees. 
And I thought this was really striking because this past week, um, you know, Joe Biden put in this executive order to protect old growth forests in the United States. And this is really meaningful because sometimes you just need to be able to leave forests alone. What science has shown us in the last few decades is that there is a lot about forests in their natural state that we don't understand. They're not just cornfields that we can manage for maximum yield. They're really complex ecosystems. So I want to just point, since this is the global news hour, to a success story in Niger. Niger is an incredibly poor place mm -hmm. where farmers basically stopped clearing trees off their farms. And then suddenly now there's more water in the soil. The crop yields are higher. They're more resilient in the face of drought and famine. And they have 200 million new trees. So the world can learn a lot from a poor country like Niger, who has really had a success story here. Always good to have success stories, good stories here as well on the Roundup. I, I do want to ask, uh, Vivian, you about another big story we're following from Miami, where we now know that the premier of the British Virgin Islands has been arrested. Andrew Foy is being held on charges of conspiring to import cocaine into the United States and money laundering. The country's ports director and her son were also arrested. Vivian, what more do we know about this sting operation? It was a fascinating story that happened on Thursday, Amna, where Andrew Foye uh, was arrested in Miami, like you said, and he's accused of agreeing to help a federal informant posing as a member of the Sinaloa cartel move thousands of kilos of cocaine through his uh, country's port. Um, so a federal, federal court documents that were released uh, detail some of the uh, conditions and the, the circumstances in which uh, he, was, uh, he was detained. Um, the documents allege that the cartel informant met with Foy and uh, Olivine Maynard, who was the managing director of the country's port authority, and like you said, was also taken into custody. They met on April 7th on the island of Tortola, and made a deal for, quote, free passage of 3,000 kilo shipments of cocaine heading from Colombia to the U.S. I'm not talking about 3,000 kilos. 3,000 kilo shipments, so plural, of several shipments of mm -hmm. 3,000 kilo, um, kilos of cocaine. And so it's quite remarkable operation. The complaint also saying that Foy was arrested at the Miami Opa-Loca um, Executive Airport after he boarded what had been portrayed as a uh, private jet. And he himself was carrying shopping bags filled with $700,000 in cash. Um, so it was a pretty incredible story for somebody uh, who is the head of, a, of, of the Vir Virgin Islands government. Um, the British Virgin Islands governor, John Rankin, later said that the criminal investigation wasn't linked to a separate UK-led inquiry examining corruption on the island, but Obviously, um, this is raising concerns about some sort of pattern of corruption, um, embezzlement, and uh, and drug drug trafficking um, as a result of, of this, this episode. Just a remarkable, remarkable story. Um, we do want to take a moment and also note that Madeleine Albright's funeral took place on Wednesday here at the Washington National Cathedral, and the former First Lady and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was among those paying tribute to her predecessor at the State Department. Now, it's been said that I urged my husband to nominate her as our first female Secretary of State. Unlike much that's said, this story is true. <laughs> Let us honor Madeline's life and legacy by being the indispensable nation she loved and served. 
and let us live as she did, in a hurry to do the most good we can with every season under heaven. That was former First Lady and Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, among those paying tribute to the late Madeleine Albright. Well, by now you might have read a story this week about a farmer in the Gaza Strip who made an amazing discovery on his land. Reports say he found a 4,500-year-old statue of an ancient goddess. That artifact went on display at a museum this week. Indira, tell me what you thought about that story. Are you seeing any red flags? Well, um, we have archaeology experts and editors at National Geographic, and immediately as soon as I saw this news, I turned to Kristen Romey, who's our senior archaeology editor, and said, what do you think about this? And she raised for me a lot of red flags about this, which is that Hamas slapped an ID on this with no evidence or backup and without allowing the leading authorities on Canaanite archaeology to come and inspect it and come to their own conclusions. So the reality is that farmers dig up ancient sculptures in this region all the time. Um, The Levant overall is notorious for forgeries. If this is real, it has zero context. It washed into a field, (laughs) um, as we know that Canaanites were already there. So unless Hamas allows specific experts in Gaza or experts on Canaanite, um, you know, archaeology to come through and examine this. This is of political interest, but essentially our view is it's an archaeological nothing burger unless we know more about it. So what what one of the leading experts on um, Canaanite archaeology said is that he didn't recognize this statue as anything he's seen before. And it's hard to say from what period it is. So really, what we need to know is we need outside experts to be able to come in, inspect it, and see what it is before we can draw any conclusions. An archaeological nothing burger. I just want to remember that phrase. It might be the first time I've heard that. Dara, thank you for that. Um, Jennifer, the final word today goes to France. Uh, President Macron won a decisive victory over the weekend, 58% of the vote, but a number of voters abstained. So what did you take away from the final result? Yeah, it was really remarkable. You know, he, Macron, won 58.5% of the vote, which in the United States would be a pretty clean sweep. Um, But in France, it was not so much the case that it was a clean sweep. As you said, so many people stayed home. I think the voter abstention rate, according to the French Interior Ministry, was 28%. That's the highest in more than 50 years. And apparently more voters abstained than actually voted for Le Pen, uh, who won 41.5% of the vote. So I think it goes to show that a lot of French voters didn't really vote for Macron. They voted against Le Pen or either, you know, or, or stayed home. Um, You know, Macron has recognized that he's not super popular right now with a lot of people. A lot of French voters see him as elitist, as only concerned with, you know, the issues of the rich, not really paying attention to the working class, to the, you know, to the everyday person. Uh, Marine Le Pen very much focused her campaigning on the economy, on helping the little guy. Um, Macron is aware of this. He gave a speech right after he, you know, won saying, look, I understand a lot of you didn't vote for me. You voted against Le Pen. I'm going to try to bring the country together, though. And he's trying to kind of go on this unity tour around the country to try to, you know, convince French voters that he does care about their interests. 
unfortunately, the very first visit that he made after his election victory, uh, he had a bunch of tomatoes hurled at him uh, by a, a disgruntled onlooker. So not a great sign that his unity tour is off to a good start. Um, but I, I think it definitely shows that he's going to face some challenges. He also faces, you know, there's a parliamentary election coming up in June uh, in two rounds. And you know, Le Pen, as well as the, the far left candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, are both trying really hard to win a majority in the National Assembly in order to kind of give Macron a run for his money in his second term. So it's going to be really interesting to watch those parliamentary elections and see what actually plays out there. Vivian, a number of people breathed a sigh of relief that the far-right candidate didn't win, but a number of people looked at that and were worried that she did as well as she did. How do you see it? Um, France is changing, um, and it's been a really interesting couple of years between the pandemic. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is weighing heavily on uh, capitals across Europe. You also have inflationary pressures. Uh, and it is it has weighed on Macron, where uh, even in Paris, which tends to be a little bit more left-leaning as are many uh, major cities, um, people are getting frustrated with him. And this is always a battle with incumbents, but in particular in this case, and especially on the heels of what happened in the UK with Brexit and sort of these changing sentiments uh, several years ago, and now we're seeing it play out in France, there's been a lot of concern of a, of a shift, and especially in a place like France that has been sort of an anchor for European solidarity and sort of this um, this need to for Europe to uh, take a, a more control of its security needs and its economic needs and President Macron has been one of the champions of that. And now to see that um, a as significant percentage of a, the electorate as we saw was trying to steer away from that, it really raised these questions about what the future of Europe is, obviously what the future of France's position in NATO, where a subject that we're talking about so much these days. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how President Macron now uh, proceeds in trying to unite the country. Obviously, he went out there on the day he won and he said, I I'm mm -hmm. no longer a candidate for some, I am a I'm the president for all. But he has a real uphill battle in front of him, that's for sure. Well, my thanks to Vivian Salama. Now National security reporter for The Wall Street Journal, Jennifer Williams, deputy editor at Foreign Policy, and Indira Lakshmanan, senior executive editor at National Geographic. 1A's managing editor is Paige Osborne. Jonklin Hill is our senior producer. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer, and Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Amna Nawaz from the PBS NewsHour, in for Jen White. This is 1A.